Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. I was asked this week by a regular listener if I was going to do 33 things this week, given all that's going on. I think I've thought about 33 things this week, but for your sanity and mine, I'll stick to three. This week, our three things are one, protecting bank depositors. We think that's happening. Two, uncertainty. It's back and it's unwelcome. And three, AT1s. Is this the end of a market? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Protecting deposits. Two weekends ago, in the wake of the mid-sized bank failures, it was clear to us that there needed to be a federal response of sufficient heft backstopping small to mid-sized banks in order to prevent contagion, additional bank runs. The issue at hand was less that we had been trained to be on the lookout for in banking failures, namely loan quality deterioration, and more of something Fed Chair Powell referred to as, quote, massive connected depositors, unquote. He is, of course, referring to the speed at which depositors can move funds fueled by the power of social media to spread a particular narrative. This creates a risk that is, again using Chair Powell's words, unlike anything we've seen before. The good news is that the federal response, coordinated between the Fed, the Department of the Treasury, and the FDIC did in the moment meet the sufficient heft test. The Fed announced it is prepared to make available additional funding, that's the BTFP, to eligible depositories to help assure those depositories have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. This week on Tuesday, in a speech at the American Bankers Association, Secretary Yellen said the government delivered decisive and forceful actions demonstrating our resolute commitment to ensure that depositors' savings and the banking system remain safe. That seems consistent and clear. Later, reports came out that officials are studying ways that might temporarily expand FDIC coverage to include all deposits, something sought by a coalition of mid-sized banks. Now, on Wednesday, Chair Powell reiterated that all depositors are safe. Again, pretty clear. But then, Secretary Yellen said in a speech that overlapped with Powell's that raising the insurance cap was not something we have looked at. Huh? Regional bank stocks sold off into the close. Now, we found really useful insight on this situation from Henrietta Trey's at Veda Partners in an interview on Bloomberg who said, and I paraphrase, that don't believe all that you hear. Secretary Yellen's dilemma is that she knows there is, in Ms. Trey's words, no appetite among House Republicans for banking reform for fear that anything is going to look like a bailout. Until this issue hits the heartland, Congress will not act. So when asked about legislating to protect depositors, Ms. Yellen had a choice, act unilaterally and suggest a massive bailout, which would have received a proportionate blowback from Congress, or avoid specifics. She chose the latter. Ms. Trays did remind that Treasury and regulators have a wide variety of tools and emergency funding sources. And that's going to have to be good enough for now. You can pull her interview up on Bloomberg. It's worth a listen. Clearly, no one wants this highly idiosyncratic banking crisis to spread, especially after the initial response was swift and effective. Understanding that a long road lies ahead to push through necessary reforms, 
It is important that regulators and policymakers leave no room for uncertainty when it comes to assuring depositors, all depositors, that their savings are secure. Not in this age of Twitter runs. All right, on to our second thing, uncertainty. We came into 2023 with reasonable visibility. Inflation was on a downward path. The Fed was moving toward the end of its hiking cycle. China was reopening. The ongoing correction back to normal would surely be cushioned by the outlook for consumer spending that continued to be fueled by a tight jobs market and still massive pile of excess savings. Now, up until two weeks ago, uncertainty was centered on the Fed, and it was one-dimensional. How much would the Fed have to hike in this world of immaculate disinflation and no-landing scenarios? Stocks were moving higher, right through long-term multiples. Same story with credit spreads, moving tighter through their long-term averages. When Fed Chair Powell testified in front of Congress a few weeks ago, the story became the number of times he said disinflation. But a lot has changed in a couple of weeks. This week, Powell's favorite word was uncertainty, which he mentioned six times in his presser and once in his statement. What seems to be uncertain has shifted to the downside. How does banking's crisis of confidence play out? How much will financial conditions tighten as a result of what's happening with the banks? What will happen to commercial real estate? What will be the impact of recent developments on risk-taking sentiment of consumers, of businesses, of investors? Interestingly, there doesn't seem to be too much uncertainty over the near term in the Fed's updated SEP, its summary of economic projections. That looks a lot like December's, at least for 2023, which is all we would pay attention to given the, wait for it, uncertainty of the out years. The one thing that stands out to us is the unemployment forecast expected to jump nine-tenths of 1% by year-end. While that would only bring the rate to 4.5%, by the way, the 50-year unemployment average is 6.2%, that kind of bounce would spook markets. And for what it's worth, it would introduce the SOM rule into the discussion. This rule, developed by former Fed economist Claudia Som, says a recession starts when the three-month average of the unemployment rate rises by 50 basis points or more from its low in the previous 12 months. Like the inverted yield curve and the conference board, U.S. leading index, the SOM rule has a pretty good record of predicting recessions, albeit off of small sample sizes. But you get the point. In the face of this uncertainty, our mantra ever since last October has been up in quality, up in liquidity, and up in simplicity. All of that still makes sense. All right, on to our third thing, AT1s. The Credit Suisse takeover could kill a $275 billion bond market. That rather dramatic headline came across this week in The Economist, triggered by news that Swiss regulators in its rescue of Credit Suisse chose to wipe out Credit Suisse AT1 holders while paying something out to shareholders. This, of course, goes against well-established priority of payment norms, despite being well spelled out in Credit Suisse's offering documents that in the event of a resolution of a troubled bank, the Swiss regulator may not be required to follow any order of priority. AT1s have always been controversial. Full disclosure, way back when these bonds were first proposed post the GFC, and a global bulge bracket house said publicly that the market for these bonds would never work, Yours truly wrote an opposing piece 
at another house, saying, I think there is room for super-yieldy, deeply subordinated bonds issued by national champion banks. Turns out there was, in size. And I believe there still will be. Yes, investors will have to thoroughly understand what happens in a distressed situation. Yes, investors will have to stomach plenty of volatility along the way. Yes, depending on an issue's particulars, investors face significant downside and possible forced selling in the case of those securities that convert into equity. But those yields. The sector survived its first wipeout back in 2017 when Spain's Banco Popular book value plunged in response to mounting perceptions of outsized loan losses and depositor flight. The bank reached a point of non-viability, regulatory designation by the ECB, and the bank was acquired in an assisted transaction by Banco Santander. Banco Popular AT1 holders were wiped out. The market went on. The need for non-dilutive hybrid capital to meet regulatory and common sense capital standards is well established around the world. We believe the market will continue to attract opportunistic investors as they balance risk and reward of these high-yielding instruments. AT1's death has been greatly exaggerated. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, protecting depositors. In this new technological age, it's essential. Two, uncertainty. It's back and it's unwelcome. And three, AT1s. This market is doing what it is supposed to do. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. See you next week. Hello, listeners. Join me, Van Hesser, KBRA's chief strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast, Leading Voices in Credit, where I'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets. That's Leading Voices in Credit with Van Hesser. Subscribe now.